Hey, Sorceress fans, we have a really special bonus episode for you today. It's two interviews that both focus on compassionate cannabis in California. And if this is your first time hearing about compassionate cannabis, we're really excited to share these stories with you. First, we speak with Joe from Sweetleaf Collective, who facilitates free cannabis for low-income, terminally ill, and HIV-positive patients, which is a really powerful interview. Then we're speaking with Ryan from Operation Evac. Ryan is a veteran himself who facilitates healing and support through his cannabis compassion program for veterans. We cover a lot in these two from the history of activism, treating cancer, how the endocannabinoid system works, to the opioid crisis and PTSD. We're highlighting the work that these two are doing to bring awareness to compassion programs as a supply chain issue. You'll hear in the interview why we believe compassion programs need to be included in legislation across the country as this all unfolds. Great news though, last week, the bill to allow these programs to operate without burdensome taxation was signed into law into California. That's great news for our guests, and we hope that these stories will encourage you to get involved, start your own programs, and call your representatives to make sure programs like this aren't written out of supply chains in your state. Enjoy. You keep hearing this phrase in the industry where they're building the plane as it's flying. They don't really know what they're doing, but they're doing it. We have a regulated marketplace and they're still not sure exactly what the regulation should be. From what we were talking about, I know we had a phone call this week where we were talking about the transition from being a grassroots activist, having to be on the radar all of a sudden and having to go through, jump through these legal hoops just to be able to donate cannabis. Yeah, so 64 changed a lot of different things as far as the supply chain goes. When we were operating under the collective model, we had anywhere between 100 and 150 patients that we provided free cannabis to. And with that number of patients, you were allowed to possess between 50 and 75 pounds of cannabis on their behalf. So I could go up to a donor cultivator and go to their farm. I could pick up 50 pounds of flour and I could bring it back to the Bay Area. And then we would ride bikes around and give away cannabis flour to each of our patients. We'd give them an ounce and a half a month. And that was all legal under the collective model. So now we have Prop 64 and every single part of the supply chain is permitted and regulated. So now I'm unable to touch the plant because I don't have a permit. And the issue with California is that there is no nonprofit license category. There's nothing for non-commercial cannabis there's no permit. I can't get a permit for that, which would then enable me to bring medicine to my patients. And so as you were seeing them draft this, I mean, the compassion community is so beautiful. I volunteered for it. I've, I've you know, been at your, you know, your last giveaway in San Francisco. And it's just, it's amazing to see these people all working so hard. You can tell that they come from a grassroots where you just have to do it yourself. You have to take care of each other. DIY and, or die. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, you're on you're on bikes, you're you're distributing, and then this happens, and you're basically written out of out of the legislation, which creates a supply chain problem that 
was not really there before, right? Yeah, it's been a big conundrum. It's been a big pivot. Now, we are still working with a bunch of the same farms, like Circadian Farms and King Ridge Farms. But, like I had mentioned before, we're not allowed to touch the cannabis. So what I have to do now is find partners in the permitted supply chain, starting with distributors, that are willing to go and pick this cannabis up for free, take it to their warehouse, then there's labs that we work with that donate lab testing. So then the cannabis gets tested, then the distribution company can take it to a dispensary that's permitted, and they are the ones who can dispense the cannabis. I'm no longer allowed to do it, and it's cost prohibitive now to ask someone to, to volunteer to deliver it all so we have to get it to a centralized location and then our patients need to come and pick it up which a lot of them have mobility issues so they did really appreciate that part of sweet leaf service that we would bring it to them free of charge yeah you eliminated both the straddle of financial access and also physical access yes so let's talk a little bit about your patients. Um, I had the privilege of being able to meet some of some of your patients um, at some of the events, but I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the people that you worked with, because you've worked with them for a long time. Some of your patients for over 20 years? I don't think we still have any of the patients from 20 years ago, but we do have a number of patients that have been with us for 10 years, 15 years, and... Yeah, we've, we've cultivated relationships with these people. They've grown to rely on us for their cannabis. You know, what we were giving them for free wound up being about an, a gram and a half a day. So it's not a whole bunch, but it's enough to see them through and it's enough to deal with a lot of their symptoms with HIV, AIDS, and also cancer. Um, you know, you think about it, it's like three half gram joints. So, you know, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, one at night. Um, and these people really rely on it. We are talking about very low income people who are living in San Francisco, which is arguably the most expensive city in the world to live in. And they're living on Social Security, so they're getting a check of around $1,000 a month to live in a city where a bedroom, to rent a bedroom is you know, $1,500 a month. So a lot of them are in subsidized housing. They are participate in free food programs, but life is very difficult for them, and they don't have the disposable income to purchase cannabis. Yeah, and I think, you know, as cannabis becomes easier to access in the rest of the country, right? We're seeing this wave happen, first medical, then rec, uh, rec as well. Um, maintaining the medical side has been such an important issue, and, and allowing access is, is huge. 
And so really huge. If you were going to give any advice to any of the other states that are currently in transition, maybe some like grassroots activists that want to know where they should put their energy and time. There's many things, equity, you know, making sure that racial disparity, all of those things, right? Um, yes. But as far as taking care of compassion, what are some of the key things that you make sure happen and are the most important when setting up a program like this? When you say when setting up a program, do you mean like when like passing new legislation or like creating a program? Um, it could be any of those things. I mean, whatever well, you think you have the best uh, perspective to be able to, to speak to. Well, for creating a program, what my model was, was the activist Food Not Bombs. It's a, an activist group where they were taking surplus from the produce industry and redistributing it to those who needed it most to homeless people. And so I use that same model in cannabis. There's a lot of surplus and there's a lot of people who really need it and can't afford it. And so we focused primarily on low income, terminally ill people and then working directly with cultivators and taking their surplus. And in the beginning, when the price of cannabis was much higher, we weren't getting such sizable donations and the quality wasn't that high and we found as the price went down that the amount of cannabis people were donating to us and the quality of it was all going up. Interesting and that was a direct result. When did, when did you see that shift as far as price? Because I know that there was prices are, were just dropping in, yeah. in the wreck uh, after 64 passed. Is that when you were seeing it? Oh, we were Way started before. seeing it like 10 years ago. Oh, wow. Probably. Okay. Yeah, what happened was, you know, in the 90s, indoor cannabis pounds were above $4,000 a pound. Outdoor pounds were still in the mid 3000s for a pound. And during that time period, there was still what we call the drought in the middle of the summer where there just wasn't anything around and people weren't doing light dep that hadn't really been popularized so you know there were waves of supply and it really kept the price up so back in those days if you had littles littles would sell for two thousand a pound and littles are you referring to the size of the bud yeah so the littles they're also called uh, popcorn so it's just smaller bud that's not as commercially viable and commercially attractive and so you know fast forward 10 15 years now all of a sudden outdoor pounds are you know between fifteen hundred dollars and two thousand dollars and the the smaller buds are becoming less commercially viable and the the farmers are growing more so they're dealing with more of the A-grade variety and they started to decide that, that they didn't want to even deal with trimming the little buds and so they would start giving them to us. That's great. So yeah, you, it was great. I mean, it's interesting because now there's a term for that, right? It's upcycling. There's people that are looking at supply chains. For example, let's say that you have a bunch of bananas that are, you're not selling fast enough or, or aren't right for the market. You can let them brown or they're bruised. Let them brown and use them for something. Someone needs mm -hmm. the thing that is 
a surplus in the supply chain. Let's mm-hmm. find an outlet for it. So it sounds like that's yeah, kind of like, what you guys are doing. Yeah, like smoothie companies. Yeah. Like they don't they actually kind of want the brown yeah, bananas. Totally. And know? bakers and all this other stuff. But, exactly. Yeah, and so you've seen this sort of like movement of of a, a way to do that, but I mean, that's such an organic way to a, to fix a supply chain problem, right? Mm-hmm. A farmer has a problem because it's not commercially viable for this, and so you're the perfect outlet for it. Mhm. And we were working with farmers in general that were 40 years old or older. Uh, Zach from Circadian Farms was an anomaly. Most of the younger generation were still worried about maximizing as much profit as they could out of their farms, whereas these older farmers who had been doing it for 10 or 20 years, their property was already paid off. And they wanted to start giving back and this plant had given them an incredible life and an incredible lifestyle and that's where we came in they wanted to give back a lot of them wanted to help low-income terminally ill people but they lived on the side of a mountain and i was based in san francisco's mission district and so i was that conduit for them that i could get it to the patients that needed it the most and they could stay on the mountain doing what they did and you know we were really we're really lucky that we got linked up with a bunch of these compassionate cultivators and people people like Zach which is funny he was donating to us he was still in his 20s but he he understood the importance he understood that people were still making a great pro- profit without having to squeeze every single little penny out of out of everything. So what do you think is the cultural shift that's happened since the 90s until now? I mean, you're talking about older farmers generally that have, you know, less debt, you know, have already been entrenched in the culture, have been already contributing in this, you know, in this environment and then now what are you seeing? Are you seeing a young, revitalizing group of farmers that are wanting to fix this problem as well? Or is this something that you're still seeing the older generation turn out for? The older generation is still turning out for it. And I feel like it's not so much that, that they have less debt. It's that they have zero debt. They have racks and racks buried in the backyard. Right. <laughs> totally. And... They're doing pretty good. And a lot of these people, once legalization happened, they could retire. They didn't have to continue in the industry. And, you know, one issue is is that people that now aren't producing anymore, you know, we're not getting donations from them. Um, people who are getting permitted are having all of their funds sucked up into the permitting process. So we are seeing less donations coming in. Uh, the profit margins of people participating in regulated cannabis are shrinking and shrinking. So it's difficult. And definitely the younger generation is still trying to get as much profit as they can out of it. But it makes sense. They're, they've only had a few outdoor seasons that they've done. They still owe on their mortgage. I can understand that perspective and you know I don't I don't hold it against anyone when we were shooting for meeting people who were 40 or above it just it just made sense you know they had kids that were already teenagers 
They had had, you know, years and years of successful harvests. They, a lot of them had multiple properties that were all paid off. And so they, they were in a really good position to give back and to give thanks to this plant that had given them this beautiful life and this beautiful lifestyle. And as much as it had helped them in their life, they wanted to use it to help other people in their li- lives. Yeah. In particular, people that were really sick. Yeah, and I've found just sort of hanging around the, you know, compassion crew and sort of almost just the older generation, I I feel much more like at home because there's this activist mindset at all times, it feels, where people take care of each other. Yeah. Um, there's kindness, there's openness. Yeah. Um, there's a policy of honesty and taking care of each other. When Yeah, the we're all in it together thing. Yeah. Back in the day, in the 90s, when camp was happening and the helicopters were flying over, all the growers, for example, where Circadian Farm and Zach is at, they all had radios and they would all communicate to each other that there was helicopters flying over. Or when there's a black convoy of 10 government vehicles driving down the dirt road, they would be contacting each other so people would know there was this community and we're not seeing as much of that community now with the driving down of outdoor prices. You know, we're seeing people losing their shirts and like whole communities scattering. And what I'm seeing in the Emerald Triangle is something similar to what happened when the timber industry failed and we're gonna start seeing little ghost towns. During the recession between 2008 and 2012, the Emerald Triangle is a big rural community and rural communities were hurt the most during the recession. Now, when you went up to the Emerald Triangle during that time, everyone was driving new trucks. Like they weren't hurt at all during the recession. Because they were unregulated, untaxed. Because they, they had an industry that was flourishing and yet because they were untaxed, a lot of people had more money and it was all because of cannabis. So now with less people, I wanna say in Humboldt, there's under a thousand permitted farms and five years ago, there was more than 15,000 farms up there. So that's a lot of income stream that is now not happening in that county. And I'm hearing reports from a lot of different businesses in Humboldt County, Trinity County, and Mendocino County that they're they're not making the money that they used to make. And these are just restaurants, stores, uh, truck dealerships. You know, it's it's definitely the legalization is starting to, to affect people. Yeah, and I think as other states set up their regulation, it's very interesting. I was just in Massachusetts. I was in... Um, I was in New York, and to see how they're setting it up, I'm really looking at their legislation. I'm looking at what's happening because this is a new era for people. Yeah. It's, a, it's the first time we're having a new industry just boom, right? And we need yeah. to be careful and take care of it and make sure it has ancillary effects in everything when you regulate, right? Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about cannabis just as a plant, as it being medicine and being basically magic and sacred and all of the things that we talk about. But, you know, a lot of people that are listening to this, maybe they have never heard those things about cannabis before. I use cannabis for my chronic pain. I have endometriosis. It's part of what I do in addition to my medicine. 
Um, I tell my doctor, even though I live in San Francisco, and she just kind of, she doesn't really acknowledge it, which is interesting because I've been able to lower the dosage of my medicine by half. And she doesn't even know how I can take 2.5 milligrams of something and still get benefit out of it. And it's because I'm using a ton of cannabis, you know? And so I think even both in the medical field and people in other states that are just not around this culture, they don't necessarily understand the true medical benefits of all of this. So I would love for you to sort of speak to what you've seen cannabis do for compassion patients. So it's really dramatic. It's really amazing. We have patients when we would do deliveries that would be crying when we would bring them the free cannabis. And through the tears, they would tell us that if we hadn't been bringing them this cannabis, that they would already have died. And one example I know of is a guy who had been a productive member of society and he had been calling one of my friends who was selling him cannabis. And at a certain point, he started losing a lot of weight and he was HIV positive and my friend didn't know that. And my friend asked him how he was doing and this guy told him his whole situation. He's like, I can't go to work now. I'm losing all this weight, I'm HIV positive. And my friend told him, hey, I wanna let you know about this thing called the Sweet Leaf Collective. And he hooked us up with his patient. And at that time period, the patient had lost an incredible amount of weight. And he was incredibly gaunt. He had no energy to go to work anymore. He told us that people would stop in the street and stare at him because he looked like he was about to die. And he was just that frail, that, yeah, that sort he, of thin? It, it's with HIV, you get wasting syndrome. Right. And you can, these patients can lose 30 pounds in 30 days. They can just drop the weight. They have zero appetite. Like food, it, it's just not appetizing. They can't get themselves to eat. And we brought him, at that time period, I think we were doing deliveries every three months. So we brought him four and a half ounces. And in one month, much like a patient like this can lose 30 pounds in a month, they can gain 30 pounds in a month. And in one month, he went back to his doctor and his doctor was like, what are you doing? Like, you look incredible you have come so far they thought he was gonna die he was on meds that cost three thousand dollars a month they were pharmaceuticals and he said none of them were working none of the pharmaceuticals which also came with a whole array of side effects they weren't working for him and the cannabis worked and his doctor said whatever you are doing keep doing it and within a few months, he had put all this weight back on. He had started working again. He went back to his job and he said, you know, he's like, it's a miracle. Like, you guys saved my life. I thought I was, I was a goner. And it's just a testament as to the, the power of this medicine. 
you know, we have an endocannabinoid system, and I hope somebody does this. I don't, I haven't heard about it yet, but um, it was discovered in 19, I believe it was 69, although it might be 68. So it's the 50th anniversary right now of the discovery of the endocannabinoid system. The endocannabinoid system is full of receptors in our body that are shaped exactly like cannabinoids. So our body is made to use this medicine and the endocannabinoid system is the system that regulates all the other systems in our body. And so if you have one thing, one system that you want to focus on to improve your homeostasis and your health, you want to focus on the endocannabinoid system. And not enough research has been done about it. And it's one of the most dramatic systems in our body that we've been ignoring for a long time because of prohibition. And the federal government was actually trying to fund research saying that, that cannabis was bad for people when that's not what science had proven, you know, much like climate change. They're looking for scientists that will just tow their political agenda as opposed to really represent the truth of the matter. Well, imagine if we could just grow our medicine. I mean, that's well, very dangerous for a lot of industries. You the know, pharmaceuticals and, don't want it. Oh, no, or they want control of it, right? Yeah, and, and you so, can't control it, especially because the pharmaceuticals want to isolate cannabinoids. And the other thing with the cannabinoids, you know, there's, there's hundreds of them, and they all work together. They work with synergy. It's called the entourage effect. And when you just isolate CBD and just use CBD, it you need to really know your dosage to hit it right on because you lose efficacy if you don't have a strong enough dose. And if the dose is too strong, you also lose efficacy. So you've got this bell curve and it's really hard to like hit that sweet spot. But when you have the entourage effect, you can have not enough CBD or maybe too much, but you get that same level of efficacy. It's not just a bell curve. You have a plateau on the top of the curve. So it's, it's interacting and working better in your system. Whole plant medicine. Yeah, whole plant medicine. And so when I explain mm -hmm. to people the entourage effect, they get it immediately, really, because it mm -hmm. makes sense that you need all of those things in order to work together in order to create an effect. Yeah, it's like, a, for example, um, and I'm probably not explaining this correctly, but there's, um, like, you can eat almonds and you can eat dates, but when you eat them together, they create a super protein. So we see this synergy, not just in cannabinoids, but, you know, in, in the world all around us. You know, it's like permaculture, where you're, like, growing plants that are benefiting each other, and it's the synergy that is one of the, the laws in, in our universe. Like there is synergy and it's in all aspects of life. Yeah, so is that why you chose to give full flower or was that the easiest thing to access without having to, you know, let's say that um, someone has cancer, should they really be smoking a joint or should they be having mm. concentrates? I mean, the thing about concentrates for me is those rigs are so expensive. Yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes I'm looking, it's like three, four, five hundred dollars. That's not what that's not what the people that you're working yeah. with are going to have access to. So how do they feel about receiving flour? I mean, it is whole it is whole plant. 
Yeah, that's what most people wanted. Most people wanted to smoke even though they had compromised immune systems and it's more healthy to eat it. It was just a habit, I feel like. People were used to smoking and that's what they wanted. Um, for us, it was also easier than having edibles. You get a lot more bang for your buck. We were doing bike delivery, so to deliver a three-month supply of edibles would take up a lot more space True. and yeah. be a lot heavier. On the logistical end of things, it would have made things a lot more difficult and we would have not been able to get to as many people and help as many people. So I really tried to streamline things to get the most effectiveness and to get as much possible out there with the limited means that we had. Yeah, that makes total sense. So when you are running these events, can you tell me a little bit about how the process goes? I know you have a list that people are that are qualified and then when you're doing you know, this, this giveaway, because if it's at a centralized location, let's say, right? How does that process work? Well, we, you know, we weren't allowed to deliver by bicycle anymore. And so for our final giveaway last December before SB 420 sunset, we did it at Dennis Perone's house. And, you know, I just called all the patients and we told them the time window that we would be there. We were there for four hours and they're all pre-qualified. The way that we qualified our patients is they needed to show us proof of low income status. They needed to show us proof of terminal illness. They needed to show us a doctor's recommendation. And then we needed to have uh, a copy of their ID as well so that we could see that that name matched all the paperwork. And so all these people had already been pre-screened with all that paperwork and then they would just show up, show their ID, and they could pick up the cannabis. Cool, so it's pretty, so that was, the one that I went to was very different than what it usually is. Typically it's people on bikes going to people's houses. Yes. So everything before that was that way? Yes. Wow. We had some meetups, um, which is what we called them. Uh, we had done them in cafes when that got a little bit sketchy. We had worked with like exactly 420 in San Francisco and we'd done pickups there. Some of our patients were in the East Bay, so we were unable to do home delivery to them. So they would have to come and pick it up. Um, we did a giveaway at Magnolia last year where we had a new patient. He came up all the way from Los Angeles. Wow. That time we were giving out eight ounces per patient and yeah, people he commuted from Los Angeles. Because they need it. Yeah, he, they didn't have compassion down there. And that's when we started looking into doing compassion projects in LA because it, the need was obviously there. If someone who's terminally ill is gonna do a two day round trip, he took a Greyhound bus all the way back down there like overnight. Wow. And so the the, you know, the lengths people will go to to get this medicine to me shows how important it is and how effective it is. Yeah, and I mean, at least the way that I have been using it for the past 
probably eight years, if I have a gap, like I travel a lot for my job, right? I can't bring cannabis with me to other countries, obviously, right? And I can't purchase it in the countries that I'm going to. When I have a lapse of using it as my medicine, I feel that for weeks. And I don't even, I mean, I'm not terminally ill. I'm a high functioning human, you know? Um, And so I can't imagine having, where would these people go? What would they do um, if they couldn't access it? I mean, it's horrible. What we've been hearing over the last year is that people are having to decide, do they buy cannabis or do they buy food? And the issue is, is that if they buy the cannabis, they have an appetite, but they don't have any food to eat. And then if they buy the food, they have the food, but they don't have any appetite to eat it. There's other compassion programs like Shelter Project that have seen patients pass because they did not have access to compassion. There's Sarah Payen from Apothecarium, and she had patients she was working with through Apothecarium's compassion service, and they passed because their cancer came back and they couldn't afford to pay for the medicine, for the cannabis, to deal with their problem. What do you see in the cancer patients specifically? Because I know with HIV, the wasting syndrome is a huge one. That can be, you can, like you said, you can see that in, in a month, you can see a huge difference mm-hmm. when they get access. Uh, what's, what happens with the cancer patients? Cancer patients, they can also have a lot of issues with keeping weight on. When you're going through chemotherapy, you have a dramatic loss of appetite. And so smoking cannabis is bringing their appetite back and they're able to keep weight on. With Simpson oil, which we were getting to some of our patients, Simpson oil creates, causes apoptosis in mutating cells, which is the biological term for when a cell decides to commit suicide. And the Simpson oil only attacks mutating cells. It does not affect healthy cells. And it's something they can't really explain. And it is, it, it's saving people from cancer. There's people I've talked to who were given a 10-day diagnosis and told that they would be dead in 10 days. And when they left the doctor's office, they should start making funeral plans. They should start writing their will, they should call all their relatives to tell them goodbye, and then they are now five years cancer-free. And they got on the Simpson oil, and within, within a month, their tumors are starting to shrink, and they're going back to their doctors, and they're getting their x-rays, and the doctors are apologizing to the patients. It's been a month since their last appointment. The the doctors are thinking they should already be dead. They shouldn't be seeing this patient anymore. And then they're looking at their x-rays and they're seeing the, the tumor is smaller. And they're apologizing to the patient and they're like, I don't know what's going on. You should be dead. Your cancer should not be shrinking. I have no idea what you're doing. Um, but it seems like it's working. And, you know, we've heard of very aggressive cancers that have been stopped with the Simpson oil, and 
people use large amounts when they're going when they have the major cancer and then they're just using small amounts after the cancer is gone just to keep the cancer away and so it can return so part of part of that is that let's say that using oil um it has helped you enough that the tumor has reduced or is gone but you need to keep using that and so that's also a key point of having access right is keeping the cancer away yes because that's the thing that we're seeing with uh, shelter project and also with the patient with the apothecarium is that these are people who beat cancer once and then it came back a lot of times people will beat cancer once twice it doesn't get you the first time yeah it's the it's that it comes back and that's why people say that you can't say someone's been cured of cancer until they've been cancer free for five years that's a long time to have access while this regulatory shuffling happens. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's a nightmare. I mean, another example is the, the Cash Hyde Foundation. They're not as active in the compassion community anymore, but they made national and international media when this child, he was two years old, his name was Cashy, Cash Hyde, and his parents started giving him Simpson oil. And... There was some public outcry. People were saying that these parents are being irresponsible by giving their child cannabis when you're talking about a family that has no other options. The doctors are saying that the child is gonna die and they use Simpson oil and his cancer went away. They were up in Montana. Now, Montana changed their laws and then all of a sudden they didn't have access to the Simpson oil and Cashy's cancer came back and he wound up passing. So he beat it the first time, then it came back. And I really have a lot of respect for that family because after that happened, they created this foundation where they were making Simpson oil and they were getting it to families because they didn't want families to experience that same loss that they had experienced. Yeah, I mean, we, we all come to act- activism in different ways, right? Let's talk about Rick Simpson real quick. The man who designed Simpson Oil is not allowed into the United States. He is seen as the same threat level as a terrorist. And the reason that he's not allowed in is because they are concerned that he will destabilize the cancer treatment industry and the chemotherapy industry, which is a multi-billion dollar industry in this country, And they're worried that he will affect the economy by teaching people how to use cannabis to help their cancer. Now, if that's not the most backwards thing ever, I don't know. I don't know what is. Most of us, when we reach old age now, will be dying from cancer. These same politicians that are not letting him in because it's going to affect the, the country's economy are most likely gonna die from this disease. So it's so backwards. It's like, like honestly, it's hard for me to conceptualize because it feels like a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Like how can how can this be a reality? Like I don't understand it. It makes it's it's hard for my mind to wrap around it because it's so counterintuitive. It's all about money. It like it it hurts me to think about it. So it characterizes 
what's wrong with humanity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and would you say that it's humanity or, or government? I'd say it's humans. Because of the greed factor? No, I mean, government is a human creation. True. It's greed. It's it's people being short-term minded. It's people not looking at the big picture. It's easy to ignore things when you're being financially rewarded for these sort of decisions. So when they cast him out of the country, where did he go? Well, he's been in Canada. He's a Canadian citizen. And I don't... And I I could be wrong with this, but I don't think he's really done anything in the United States. He was working with some groups, but I'm not sure if he came here and then they put him on this list or if he was just on the list. But yeah, he's you can look at the video, the movie they made. It's called Run From The Cure. It's kind of I don't I don't really like that title, but um you know, he obviously didn't have any branding, marketing people working with him, <laughs> but it's a great movie, and they talk about that in there, and it's all about him, and there's interviews with patients whose lives he's saved, and he's just some country boy from Canada, older guy, who just found cannabis worked for people, and then he, being the nice, innocent Canadian that he is thought that it would be great for the world to know about it. And then even his government tried to shut him down, tried to say that cannabis is a drug. And he thought that they just didn't understand what he was talking about. And he kept being vocal and to the point where they really started coming in to shut him down. And that's when he got mad because he had something that was going to help humanity and he was being stifled. And we are so lucky that they were unable to stop him. Yeah. And that he is respected in certain countries. Croatia is one country where he goes on speaking tours in really? colleges. Yeah. And I've spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe, primarily in Serbia. And over there, my average Serbian friends know more about Simpson oil than my friends in California where we've had medical cannabis for 20 years. Like my friends over there, when was it? It was, I want to say three or four years ago, they were giving, my one buddy was giving his dog who had tumors, was giving him Simpson oil and knew all about it. And they had like friends who were making it. And it's really illegal there. And Vice did a, Vice Serbia did a little video about the Serbian Simpson oil scene. And, you know, there's like people my age who are making it for, like one guy was making it for his mom. And his mom in the interview is like, I don't want my son to be breaking the law. I'm so worried if they catch him, he's going to go to jail for two or three years. And the son looks at his mom and he's like, I, I have to do this. Yeah. I can't watch you die when I know that there's something that can help you. And if that means I have to break the law, and if that means I have to go to jail, then I'm going to do that. And that's the history of cannabis activism. Yeah. It's knowing that this plant has so much potential to help people and figuring that out. How to do it. We, at, at any cost. Yeah, sometimes. 
Sometimes when you hear the call, you have to do everything in your power because people are hurting and they need people to stand up for them. And I lived for decades thinking that at any moment my door could be kicked in by the federal government and I could go to jail for 10 years. And that's scary and I have PTSD from being in this industry. But I, not for a second do I regret anything that I've done. This is what I had to do. And even if I had wound up going to prison, I would still do it. This is something much bigger. This is not about me as an individual. This is about us as humanity. And we need to help each other. We're all in this together. And this is what the majority of the world's religions are based upon. It's about being good people. Yeah. And if something like a government is unjust, I always felt that it's my duty to fight it. And people telling me in the 90s that I was breaking the law and I needed to be careful, all I could think of is that if there's this law that I need to break, it needs to be broken because that law is wrong and I can't sit by and watch people suffer when I know that there's something that I can do about it. It's, it's my duty. Yeah. And I mean, thank you for what you do. I mean, when I was at the place where there, you know, we were facilitating um, the cannabis, I, the mood was so jovial and I didn't really know what to expect. Like I'd been to the fundraisers, you know, and I've, I've done a, a few things. I've met a few Compassion Project uh, recipients, but people were so joyous, lined up, waiting. I mean, I felt that compassion just beaming through every volunteer, every person in that line. I mean, just the way everyone spoke to each other, it was like you are creating something that is so much bigger, like you're saying, and it was so beautiful. It's contagious as well. Yeah. It's, um, it's inspiring. I was inspired years ago by people like Dennis Perrone and the original San Francisco Cannabis Buyers Club and people like Valerie Corral, who I have the honor of working with. She'll be at the event tomorrow night speaking. And I have suffered from depression from a very young age. And when I was a teenager, they were putting me on antidepressants and what I feel like I really needed was a lifestyle change. And when I became an adult, I, I started doing activism and service. And I found that if I couldn't smile, if I made someone else smile, that that made me smile. 
and that is really contagious and you know we had a new volunteer at that giveaway and um he was so pumped after that and i was like this this is my antidepressant like this is what gets me out of bed in the morning like this is what gives my life purpose you know there's so many movies where people are searching for the meaning of life like it's something hidden away on some desert island and I'm really lucky because my mom taught me when I was very young she taught me the meaning of life and she said you're here to help and you're here to learn and everything else is extra and that's what I do. My mission in life is to ease human suffering. And that's what I'm going to continue doing. And I'm really happy to see new generations of compassion. This younger generation, Munchie Movement is a great example of millennials that are giving away free cannabis to homeless people and also giving free food to them as well. And I love talking with them and this is what magic is. Magic is focused will. Magic is changing your reality around you. Yes. Magic is doing things that people tell you are impossible and it's only impossible because they were never able to do it. And not believing other people but really following following one's heart and doing what you know is right even if it means breaking the law even if it means you might get hurt even if it means you might go to jail so let's talk about the future of your company your project so oh yeah i like this part yeah so so we know how problematic it has been that this was not written into 64. Yeah. We know who has been affected. Now you are currently in the transition of becoming a nonprofit to get ready for hopefully a nonprofit license, which doesn't exist yet, but we as a community are pushing for. Yes. So future of Sweet Leaf, there's um, a number of different things going on. We are about one or two weeks out from doing our first regulated giveaway where we have raised money through donation drives to pay for the taxes on the cannabis. And so, so we're gonna be doing a giveaway really soon with working with Flocana and Spark and Sweetleaf is paying off all the taxes and we're looking to get an ounce to an ounce each to 50 of our patients in San Francisco. And so this is going to be the first time we've paid the taxes. Yeah, and so hopefully when this comes out we'll have already been giving stuff away. Um, yeah. And we're working with other manufacturers and cultivators who want to donate and we're just trying to figure out how to do things in this interim time period before we get these taxes removed, which I'm very hopeful that we will be able to do. And then once we get those taxes removed, that's the big thing holding us back. 
from giving away. There's a lot of old school cultivators and because we're on social media, we're finding more cult permitted cultivators that want to participate and they're just not sure how. And that's why I have been lining up the whole permitted supply chain and I'll be able to plug them in much more easy if we are not having to pay taxes. We want to expand to also help out veterans and in the future try to help out all low-income people and not just terminally ill and not just veterans. We are also in the process of becoming a nonprofit that we can do support services. So the main project with that is doing a food pantry where we will get our patients free food to also help them. And then we want to make a website that tells people what ailments are helped with different cannabinoids and terpenes. And we also want to start doing research with doctors because we have a bunch of patients and we can do surveys and get them out to our patients. And if the doctors input them, then it's real research and not anecdotal evidence. Yeah. And yeah, so we're just, we're hitting things from all angles. Cannabis is just getting more and more normalized. And now, you know, it's time to take it to the next level. We're not just a little activist group, you know, getting handouts. We're also looking at doing co-branding because we want to start generating more revenue so we can expand compassion. It's amazing. Yeah. The sky's the limit. Thank you for all you do. Oh, you're welcome. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. It, um, it's what puts a smile on my face. Me too, man. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to Joe for taking the time to chat. To find out how you can get involved by donating or volunteering, go to sweetleafcollective.org. We have our interview with Ryan Miller from Operation Evac up next, so stay tuned. We're going to get into why veterans are gathering to meditate and receive free cannabis up next. So you are a co-founder of Operation Evac, right? True. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Absolutely. So we prevent suicide and opiate overdose in the veteran community with recurring social support groups in partnership with cannabis dispensaries. We launched on Memorial Day 2016 with relief in Soma, and we've expanded to include the Apothecarium and the Castro Magnolia in Oakland, Berkeley Patients Group, and A Perfect Union in Sacramento. And those are all dispensaries in California. Absolutely. And so 2016, that's an interesting time to start something like this. Were you Was your eye on the rec market? That's a really good question. So prior to 2016, I was working at Harborside Health Center Yeah, I love Oakland, Harborside. And Dave Wedding Dress, one of the co-founders, asked me if I'd like to start a support group for veterans. And I loved the idea, and we facilitated what we called Harborside Heroes for two and a half years there. And then I left Harborside in January, and then launched Operation Evac in May, in Memorial Day. Cool. So you sort of got to try it on someone else in someone else's space with someone else's you know reputation, and then move from there. In reflection, they were like our incubator. Sure. 
Absolutely. And it's important for people to provide people opportunities to do that. I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. Absolutely. Gave me such a platform, helped me figure out how to do this practice. I made a lot of mistakes on the way. I didn't have as much training or experience then. And so yeah, I'll always be grateful to Harborside for that, that platform. What are some of the early, I don't want to say mistakes, but like things that you, you had to learn doing <laughs> something like this? I mean, you're taking something that at that time and still now, federally, federally illegal. Basically how to hold space. And now during our discussions, we practice forming positive narratives about our experiences and avoid the veteran as victim mentality. Yeah. So years ago, though, I would kind of dig in a little more and say if you didn't really feel comfortable sharing, I'd try to pull it out of you. Mm. And so now I just look at it, I try to keep the, the conversation positive, and you don't have to share. Just being there, sharing the space, listening is, is effective. And how big are the groups that you meet with, you're gonna go later to the Castro and have one mm -hmm. of these these meetings. So when you first started, how large were they, or how small were they, and then how much have they grown? So our first group was in Relief in Soma, and we had like seven members show up for the first time, and now we're getting closer to 70 troops every Saturday morning. Wow. Yeah, it's abundant and a lot to manage. Absolutely. So what kind of a space do you need for 70 troops? It's a community housing space and they let us use their community room. And so it's it's a good size space, got vaulted ceilings, a lot of natural light. Uh, we've made a lot of magic in that room. Nice. So are most of the people that coming that are coming, are they already using cannabis as medicine or are they often sort of kind of curious? I would say the vast majority have experience with cannabis, yes. And you know, the dispensaries do a great job you know, promoting and sending them up in our direction. Um, there are some kind of more novice users that we ensure to kind of hold their hand through the, the practice. Sure. Um, education is a big part of what we do to, towards safe consumption, uh, especially with edibles. It could be a slippery slope. And a lot of us, you know, have this uh, crazy edible story. Yeah. And for some people, it just pushes them away from cannabis altogether. So we try to prevent that. Yeah. So how are some of the troops using cannabis as medicine? So we accept donations in, in any capacity that they could arrive. Flowers, topicals, tinctures, edibles. And so they appreciate everything, Every cannabinoid delivery method that becomes available sure and it's kind of my job is to expose them to different delivery methods and different products uh, and so flowers are super popular um, I, when i did this at harborside for two and a half years all i would distribute would be a topical spray and a tincture from uh, external and internal uh, and so yeah so when you're when someone approaches you, a farmer, I imagine it's a farmer, mm -hmm. um, that's either in the regulated space or outside of that. Right. Um, wh what does that look like for them to facilitate to be able to give you, whether it be products or flour? Yeah, it's fantastic, really, because I don't have to do a lot of outreach, seeking donations. They sort of find us. That's great. It's 
so beautiful you know the, the universe does provide and we have such a supportive community that helps us get the word out and helps us kind of seek compassion um so yeah folks will you know reach out to me on instagram or facebook or email uh, and then yeah basically we just set an appointment to come retrieve their philanthropic intentions uh, and it's really it's a it's a magical like sacred experience because I have this privilege to serve as a, a conduit for compassion. I'm just collecting it and redistributing it. I don't grow it. Um, I don't produce it myself. And really, we have an abundant supply at the moment. It's great. Um, and it's I'm just super grateful to the whole community. You know, and really, some of these folks are licensed manufacturers, and they are essentially putting their licenses at risk to support us. Mm -hmm. And so I can't really give them the shout outs and the promotional uh, PR and the corporate social responsibility acknowledgements um, because it puts their licenses at risk. Sure. So they're essentially just doing it from the heart. Yeah. Right. Which is what this compassion stuff supposed to be about. It's what cannabis is supposed to be about. <sighs> Hello. And so, yeah, I'm just super grateful for the entire community that's really demonstrating that we won't be left behind. Yeah, that's cool. Cannabis is a fantastic part of the practice, and it's only 10 minutes of it. Right? Of your meetings. Yes. So it's mostly support and then a small amount of cannabis that can sort of facilitate further healing. Absolutely. So it's our discussion, 10-minute cannabis distribution and education, and then a 20-minute guided meditation called I Rest Yoga Nidra. So yeah, cannabis is super important, especially the affordability of it is a primary concern for veterans. Uh, opiates are free at the VA. Antidepressants are free at the VA. Alcohol is a much cheaper substitute. So uh, providing free cannabis is super important. And it's kind of like bait, right? You know, if you light a joint in public, People come sure. to it. People are attracted to that. It's like a magnet for relationships. Yeah. Similarly, in our work, the free cannabis attracts people to come and curate the community, practice the meditation, and absolutely re reduces a lot of the financial burden of cannabis as medicine. Yeah. And so, you know, looking at this as a, as a supply chain issue, we've seen the affordability of cannabis just become pretty outrageous in California. Mm. So how has that changed in terms of affordability and access from the beginning until now? Because you started in the medical market and then when REC came, that's when that sunsetted, right? Absolutely. So compassion, the phil philanthropic exchange of cannabis is part of our culture as California cannabis community. And absolutely with Proposition 64, that piece of our culture was left out and you know, I advocated for Prop 64. I voted for Prop 64, even though it put my specific business model at risk. Uh, I believe in the greater good. I believe in working with progress and working against it. Um, and I was confident that we'd be able to fix it. And so, yes, really there's an abundant amount of generosity from the community whether it comes from the regulated market or the unregulated market. We accept donations by any means necessary. Uh, we can't really be choosy. 
Um, we would prefer that it's all lab tested and clearly labeled and you know, vetted that way. Um, but I can't really turn down any, any sources. Sure. Does that put you at risk, though, to accept from the non-regulated space? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I put my freedom at risk. I, I was pulled over by Highway Patrol once on the way back from our most generous farmer uh, with about 100 pounds in the car. And I was confronted with the possibility of going to prison. And it forced me to reevaluate my commitment to this work. And ultimately, if the state wants to incarcerate me for distributing free weed to veterans, then I'm willing to accept that. Yeah, that's beautiful. So what have you, how have you seen cannabis and your support groups help some of, some of these people? I mean, you can tell your story, you know, individually, but I mean, I've done compassion work with Sweet Leaf mm -hmm. and I mean, I leave those donation, those facilitation um, workshops and events with so much energy mm. because people are so grateful and just there's there's a certain energy that comes from giving someone something that's going to help <laughs> them in so many ways right i mean cannabis is it's literally magic right it's the most magical Agreed. plant um and so what do you think is the biggest benefit from ha just having access how are people using it totally so we're experiencing transformative results a lot of my community is poverty class citizens. And when you live in poverty, you need to have a certain sense of um, aggression, even hyper-masculinity, right, to avoid being selected as a victim. Mm. And so I, in about six months, we've trained, you know, changed folks from being uh, curmudgeons, right, just sour, bitter, angry, short, rude people into warm, gentle, funny, considerate, kind members of a community. And I mention that because, you know, it's my job to just create the container. And as a group, they sort of inform each other on how to behave what's more socially acceptable, what's going to be uh, inappropriate behavior in a group. And so, yeah, extraordinary transformational personality um, evolutions. We've prevented suicides. You know, we got a troop on the ledge recently. Mm -hmm. um, we see about 130 troops every month. Been doing this work five years. And we haven't lost a single soul to suicide or opiate overdose. It's amazing. And we've been close. Right. Super close. And uh, I have a lot of anxiety about that, right? Like, yeah. we're batting a thousand. And, yeah, I, I'm dreading the possibility that we could fail, essentially. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of my troops, he... I was a Vietnam veteran. The first time he consumed cannabis was his second day in Vietnam. They were under attack from mortars, and he was freaking out a little bit. And his sergeant offered him a joint, said, smoke this. And he 
it immediately calmed him down and reduced his anxiety. And yeah. he attributes it to enabling him to survive the experience and return back home safely. Wow. Um, and again, he is a, a poverty class citizen and the free cannabis that he's received from Operation Evac has enabled him to save money enough to fix his teeth. And so now he can smile more confidently. Wow. Now he can chew his food, right, and enjoy mm -hmm. uh, meals that he wouldn't have been able to otherwise. Uh, and there's so many examples of just transformational results and I think, you know, life-sustaining and life-enhancing. So you were mentioning the VA before and how, you know, they have, they give access to veterans for lots of things, right? Mm -hmm. But one of them is opiates. Totally. And so were some of the people coming to you, were they addicted to opiates because they were going to the VA for help and now they're turning to cannabis to rehabilitate? Yes, I would agree with that. I, I noticed in research that opiate use increases with every war. The technology to deliver these opiates increases with every war. Uh, and yes, you know, veterans overdose at a rate higher than the general population. And I think the VA is recognizing this. And sort of um, an effect of that is they're cutting folks off of their opiates. Um, and what that is doing is forcing folks to go to the street for heroin. Yeah. Um, so, yes, we do have folks that are recovering from opiate addictions in terms of pharmaceuticals or from the street. Yeah, and I think that's something that doctors haven't figured out. I think there's a clear consensus that no one is sure how to take people off opiates properly. Mm. And like you said, if they're getting stronger and better technology in terms of slow release, quick release, all of these things, you know, our bodies are responding very quickly to it. Totally. And if there's folks listening now that want to learn how to use cannabis to help wean off opiates, um, Ed Breslin, the, the founder of external and internal told me that with his tincture, the internal tincture, it's a full cannabinoid blend, primarily THCA. If you consume cannabis an hour before your normal opiate dose, when that hour arrives and you're supposed to consume it, you might not need it. Mm. And so an hour before, consume some cannabis and then see how that feels at your normal dosage. Yeah. Compassion programs are basically forced to work, work in this gray space, which is putting lots of people at risk. Mm. But we know that it's a necessary thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, it's the right thing to do is to get people their medicine. So where do you see this going? I mean, I know that pe some people are hoping that there's a nonprofit license. Right. But what would be ideal for, for your situation? Yeah, and you know, a lot of my work is, again, practicing positive narratives. Mm -hmm. And so I'm balancing this fear of uncertainty with just faith that the community and the industry won't leave us behind. And so I'm really optimistic about the future of uh, philanthropic supply chain in California. Uh, SB 34 gives me a lot of confidence in that. Um, we're passing committees. It's going to be introduced to the actual assembly uh, very soon. The California Police Chiefs Association initially wrote in opposition to the bill, uh, but then they withdrew that opposition also. So there's essentially no opposition to this. 
Yeah. Um, and we have a different governor now. Right, because last time was the same, right? Did the police oppose it before? Or I didn't think they did no. in the first one, but then the governor rejected at the desk. Exactly. Even though it's one of the most bipartisan issues. Yeah, it passed the Assembly and the Senate nearly unanimously. Yeah. And I thought it was in the bag, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it really broke my heart when he vetoed it, Governor Brown vetoed it. Uh, it just made me realize how exhausted I am just from all the meetings and the conference calls and the traveling and the organizing and advocating for it to all just be erased with the stroke of a pen. Yeah. I honestly uh, thought about self-immolation at the time. I thought about lighting myself on fire because like, what is it going to take for these people, these policymakers, to understand how serious and how important this is. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you didn't. We're gonna yeah. Get, we're gonna get it through. <laughs> I hope. God I have willing. so much hope in this as well. It it feels different, yes, and just my experience with politics is that you can't trust these politicians, yo. Like, no. <laughs> they're gonna do whatever they want. Yeah. I think. These institutions like voting and public comment provide for the illusion of proletariat participation. Yeah. Okay, citizen, you got your two minutes. You're on the record. Okay, go back to work now. Yeah. You know, so it's slavery was legal, apartheid was legal. Uh, right now, putting children in cages is legal. Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily concern myself with what's legal and illegal more what's the right thing to do like you said yeah so when someone reaches out to you cannabis is becoming something everyone's looking to in Mm. the capitalist world Mm. they're seeing it as something that can be Mm. traded you know we're seeing it move towards commodity Um, we're seeing the price of flour drop Um, we're seeing farmers not able to sign up for licenses because it's too expensive people being blocked out Um, so as it's moving state by state, but then eventually it's going to be federal. What What's your hope that's going to happen on that level? Thank you for asking this, because really we have a long-term sort of goals here. Uh, initially, we want to serve as the model for veteran services in a dispensary setting, and we want to demonstrate scalability. We've trained Alex de la Campa. He's a retired uh, naval special warfare operator and he's with him we're going to expand to the south bay this year and so once we get him set up then we've demonstrated scalability and we can train folks throughout the country to provide this service we want to use this as an advocacy platform to bring safe access to veterans in every state we fought for our country we didn't fight for our state and so Veterans should have equal access to cannabis in every hometown. Because mm-hmm. troops in Tennessee and Texas and Utah are leaving their families, their churches, their communities, their networks to come to California, often sleeping in their cars, just to have access to cannabis medicine. And so veterans need access in every state. And then our Long-term goal is active duty military access to cannabis. For me and my experience and a lot of other troops, if we had access to herb as an alternative to alcohol, Mm -hmm. we would 
more likely avoid alcohol-related decisions that, one, compromise our career path, and secondly, compromise our global reputation. So do you think that's incredible? So one thing I think a lot about alcohol, I don't drink, um, and it's very hard for me socially to hang out with people. All of the Mm. spaces are meant for Mm -hmm. alcohol, and we've seen, you know, in Nevada, cannabis isn't allowed in casinos because... Mm alcohol facilitates risk or it encourages risk Mm. right and so it's the perfect thing for gambling but cannabis it Mm. makes you like you said you can have a transformation even the first time Mm. that you're having this medicine you become more compassionate Mm. you become less risk averse right Right. i mean overall Right, right um and so it's interesting that you say that and but there's so much stigma with cannabis versus alcohol that somehow that's totally allowed even though it's almost the opposite of what cannabis can do no, absolutely. I quit drinking a little over three years ago and was the best overdue decision I've ever made in my life. And yes, with a lot of new cannabis folks coming into the space, they are definitely more comfortable with drinking than dabbing, sure. for example. Yeah. And so it is a challenge, I think, to you know, exist in these social situations you know, for me, it's harder to hold a conversation with somebody that's been drinking because they're not as focused, they're not as articulate. Mm. Um, and so it's definitely an exciting time to be alive to help with these cultural shifts. And in the military, like we have a heritage of alcoholism. Yeah. The first Marine recruiting station was in a bar in Philadelphia, Tun Tavern. Really? Yes, the, the Navy has like beer in their him right in their in their song Um, but also you know cannabis consumption and smuggling is just as part of our heritage as alcohol use is Uh, dennis perone the godfather of compassion in california was an air force uh, vietnam veteran and he's quoted as saying he returned from vietnam with two pounds of cannabis and turn that into a 40-year career. There's a film of veterans, or excuse me, like active duty soldiers in Vietnam uh, using a shotgun as a pipe. And they're passing that around to each other. And that's where the shotgun sort of inhalation practice came from. Really? Absolutely. Um, And there's also a troop named Peter Lemon. Peter Lemon is a Vietnam veteran and a Medal of Honor recipient. And he revealed more recently in interviews that the night that they were raided and he fought all these waves of the Viet Cong off basically single-handedly, he had consumed cannabis that night. And I think he attributes it to helping out with his focus in the moment. And I would argue it helped him with his heart and his recovery Mm. from that traumatic experience afterwards. Wow. So as far as being able to facilitate and consume cannabis during active duty, Mm. that seems like a big stigma to be able to jump over because I think just referring to alcohol being more accepted, I think people don't think that you can be fully present and coherent and all of the things that you absolutely need to be, Mm -hmm. especially in that situation, right, Right. Um, with cannabis. And so what would that look like? No, this stigma is real, right? And I was in Washington, D.C. a few years ago, and I randomly met the Commandant of the Marine Corps. Whoa. Yeah, four stars, right? 
chest full of medals and we were posing for a photograph and he asked me what did I do in the Marines and I said data communications and he said what are you doing now and I, I you know gave him a little pop on his chest and I said now I'm educating veterans about cannabis and I invited him to imagine how different his Monday morning would be as a commander if his troops were smoking herb instead of drinking alcohol on the weekends and no commander at any level, any rank, can argue against that. Because every Monday morning, they get this report of Marines and sailors and soldiers doing very regrettable things all across the world under the influence of alcohol. Mm. So I don't anticipate as much resistance now, these days, just in reflection of this alcohol basically epidemic that we have like i said it's a heritage of alcoholism um, but like in terms of what that would look like i think canada is already ahead of the game here mm -hmm. they've authorized uh, cannabis use for their active duty troops and i think they require like a 24 to 48 hour kind of buffer between consumption and your uh, duty reporting for duty yeah which is very reasonable right it's reasonable, sure, and we could do better. I think there's no reason to be afraid of cannabis use. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of reducing anxiety, it could even make folks better operators, right? Imagine being able to consume cannabis before you go on your 20-mile hike with a 60-pound pack on your back. Sure and reduce the inflammation and the, the activity of your pain receptors and help you with your focus and help you just with a camaraderie experience with your fellow warriors. Sure. Yeah, I know. I think people look to alcohol for bonding, but my favorite way to get to know somebody is to just smoke a joint, right? Totally. Like, you know, when I got out, I had a lot of social anxiety, terrified to introduce myself to strangers. And I found that if I lit a joint in public I would have to introduce myself to others they would introduce themselves to me yeah and so it is a great magnet for relationships sure absolutely that's cool I wonder I wonder if you'll get a call from that guy someday it's funny um so we went to Meadowlands this year yeah and first meal of the the trip we're kind of looking for where we should sit and we heard some folks say something about mushrooms. So we're like, okay, we're going to sit with them. Well, the niece of the commandant of the Marine Corps was at that table. Are you serious? Small world. And just for listeners, this is a very small gathering of... Last year it was maybe 400 people. Right. I wasn't able to go this year. How much was it? How many people? Uh, a little more, maybe about six. Okay, six yeah. But it's, I mean, it's in the Redwoods. It's very remote and it's industry focused. Absolutely. So he does he, do you think he knows that his niece is involved? Absolutely. Cool. And, you know, she informed me that uh, he asks her questions about it and, you know, he's getting out soon. He He's being replaced by a new commandant and she invited me to imagine the possibility of him being on my board one day wow and yeah i would welcome that so general i won't out you but uh <laughs> if you're listening come on over yeah <laughs> well i think that as 
this is a lot of unlearning, right? I mean, mm. we've been taught a lot yes. about what cannabis is and relearning that it can be such a function in people's lives that I don't think it's ever too late. Totally. We're inviting folks to unlearn what they've been programmed under decades of reefer madness mm -hmm. and racist misinformation and propaganda. And so that's that could be like traumatic for folks, right? Because you open up the possibility of, well, what else have I been lied to about? Sure. Hmm. And so it definitely helps to be informed about you know, the history and the potential of cannabis. And then also combine that with caring, right? Because when you match knowledge and um, emotion, right? I think you definitely have the ability to break through to folks. Yeah. The U.S. has basically been in perpetual war. Mm. Just nonstop. Thank you. I... I came from an area in rural Pennsylvania where it was a hev heavily, heavily recruited. Uh, and I remember every, you know, twice a year pretty much, we would have, during lunch, we would come and sort of sit and chat. And I never really knew how to take that. And I asked my mom, you know, is this something, because it was rural and farmers and, mm -hmm. and you know, what? And she said, oh, I think that's just how it is everywhere. Can you tell me, is that true? Or is it, or do they focus on specific areas? She told me she thought that it was because they had come there at one time and then there, there's enough people that once they get out, they come and they recruit from the same area. Hmm. Um, but I, I was, I'm just personally curious. Absolutely. That's a fantastic question. And yes, America has been in a perpetual state of warfare since probably like world war two. And you know, we've been in Afghanistan longer than we've been in Vietnam, mm -hmm. but where's the anti-war movement? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. People were in the streets for Vietnam. And why is that? What, what is the difference between now and then? From what I understand, Vietnam was different because it was televised. And so yeah. people, people were more connected and also mm. there was a draft. There and so go. in those two things, both seeing mm -hmm. people coming back and people not coming back, both televised in addition to people involuntarily having to go, mm -hmm. it was outrage. Yep. And... Sometimes I wonder, is that what's necessary for people to understand? Right. That if people were just always volunteering and we always had this force, people feel it a little bit less. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I'm not sure. No, you, you, you nailed it, basically. Um, there is not a draft anymore, but what we're experiencing is a socioeconomic draft where folks from low-income communities that somehow avoid the prison industrial complex are funneled toward violent servitude in the military industrial complex to clamber toward upward social mobility. And so that's why you see the recruiters in the rural areas. That's why you see recruiters in the high schools that are the lower socioeconomic areas. You don't see the recruiters at the high-end private schools and the prep schools. Why? Because those kids have options for college. Sure. Right? The, the unemployment rate, what it is, tuition rates, what they are. Folks like me from like single parent communities see the military as really our only hope for this myth of the American dream. Yeah. And then 
you go. And I remember seeing these young boys signing up and, and I was scared for them because we were, we were in, it was, you know, mid two thousands was happening, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was terrified Mm. and, you know, but they were telling me I'm going to come back and I'm going to have so much more respect than my dad. My dad's a farmer. This is my Mm. way out. It's a true ticket, you know? Mm. And I'm so happy because cannabis is starting to move in Pennsylvania. I just talked to someone today. They just added anxiety um, to the list of medical requirements or eligibility. And as that expands, access expands. I have so much hope for that community. No, absolutely. And it really just struck me what you said because isn't that just such a misplaced source of honor? Yeah. Like, how can we glorify killers more than farmers? I know. Right? Yeah. And really, that's what folks like the Santa Cruz Veterans Alliance have shown me. And these folks are military veterans that are finding restoration through horticultural therapy. Right? These folks may have violently extinguished life. And now they're gently nurturing life. Mm. And there's a lot of healing to be found there. They also have some of the best flower, I think. Some of the best. Kosher Kush. What's up? I know. It's mm-hmm. so good. And But it, they, places run out because it's that good. And when I went in, I said, oh, I'm looking you know, for this, anxiety and inflammation and this and that. And they said, you should just get this brand. When they have it, it mm-hmm. has the seal. You know. And they have that fantastic quality. Yep. And they also have fantastic values. They're yeah. among the most generous compassion providers in the area and they really you know set the bar in a lot of ways for veteran services in the cannabis world it's cool just really you know america is the most violent militaristic country on the planet earth at this time and we have been for a really long time and this entire consumption oriented capitalist babylonian class full experience is built on the backs of about 4% of the population that is willing to wear the uniform to violently retaliate if the homeland is harmed and violently acquire foreign resources. Yeah. And so if you are enjoying the quality of life in this country, it's essentially your moral responsibility to get involved in both resisting war and welcoming home the troops. America does a great job at sending troops to war and winning battles. Do it better than anybody. Mm-hmm. But we don't really do much in terms of bringing them back and reintegrating them into our society. We can do a lot better in terms of employing veterans, raising, elevating them to leadership and management, offering them equity in your businesses, places on your boards, and arguably, we've earned it. Yeah. And about this, you know, welcoming home the troops, I feel Mm. like oftentimes veterans get used as a pawn for politics. Thank you. And then in examples like Jerry Brown when everyone is behind this bill Mm -hmm. republicans and democrats especially in california all you have to do is drive down the five and see how divided the country the the state is from all of their signs until in between the large cities 
And yet you have politicians that have this power and this privilege and they reject it when it can help mm-hmm. so many people. So what do you think is the disconnect between welcoming home the troops and happily sending them? And this weird, you know, this mystique of, of honor that's really applied selectively. Hmm. Pow, that was a good one. <laughs> so yeah, it's fascinating to me, right? And I think that's where, you know, capitalism gets involved, right? In this whole Ayn Rand um, objectivism, right? Where my job is really about me and my family. Yeah. That's what's most important. Not the village, right? Definitely not the warriors returning to the village. Mm-hmm. Me, 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 and mine, mine, mine. And so if we expand our concern to others and we empathize with their struggles and we reflect on our unexamined privileges, I mean, what else is there to, you know, what can I do to inspire you better to get, get involved? Right. Um, yeah, this, I'm fascinated really, you know, what is it going to take for Americans to affect change? Yeah. From the citizen level to the policymaker level, you know, change is happening all over the world, revolutions and movements. But here, I think we're so dependent on our wages. Most Americans are overworked and underpaid. Most of us, like me, are living like paycheck to paycheck. And so that's why protests happen on the weekends. Right. And as soon as Monday morning hits, there goes that demonstration. Sure. It's more important for the average American to punch in, collect the paycheck, instead of organizing, advocating, speaking truth to power, acting as an agent of change. And I'm, yeah, I'm waiting. I did just as much protesting under the Obama administration that I have now. Yeah. I went to Standing Rock while Obama was the president. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was an experience for me that was really inspiring because, you know, veterans came from all over the country to Standing Rock, North Dakota, to you know, stand in solidarity with the indigenous water protectors. And we won for the moment. They you know, withdrew the permit to continue drilling. And one of the first things that 45 did when he came into power was reinstitute the drilling yeah. at Standing Rock. And it really yeah, broke my heart. So it sounds like there's a, a large force of veterans that are these, I mean, they're activists and they're allies to each other. Mm. I mean, imagine, well, you know, how many veterans there are all banding together and saying, I mean, I think that veterans in general should have a larger say in the way that the country is run. They're protecting, mm-hmm. they're serving. And so what kind of world do they want to create? Mm. I really appreciate that. It's funny the when we were at Standing Rock, the the Sioux, the Lakota, were taking care of us. They were housing us in their in their gymnasiums and they were feeding us. And this one uh, elder mentioned that they've never prepared so much food for vegetarians before. Right, so you had all these vegetarian veterans coming from <laughs> all over the country, 
right? And so that can give you a little indication of the world I think we want to create. Yeah. Um, and you did mention that, you know, veterans, you know, organize and, and support each other. Because I believe that, you know, nobody cares about us as much as we do. Yeah. No one's going to demonstrate that commitment to not leave us behind like we will. Mm-hmm. And so it's really inspiring. Um, you know, one of the elders out there mentioned that really that's what our job is to do, is to be involved in situations like Standing Rock. It's not to sit at home and collect our pensions and just go along with our lives. You know, service and your identity as a service member does not have to end when you get a discharge. You really could just begin if you allow it to. Did did you partake with any of the elders in cannabis? Were no, you able to? They did have uh they did request that we didn't bring cannabis out there. Um we didn't want to like, you know, compromise the integrity of the, the movement and we wanted to honor that. Um but you know, we, we consumed it all the way to the point of getting out there. Sure. It was a long bus ride. Yeah. And um yeah, so I'm really, you know, would love to help educate the indigenous community toward the benefits of cannabis, particularly as a substitute for alcohol mm-hmm. and other substances. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean, access, they need access to water. They need access to basic, 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 and imagine cannabis. It's so magical. I just think, I mean, it's just so joyful to me to think of the possibilities and I put so much stock in that true, like, cannabis people and activists are some of them the best people I've ever met in the whole world. Mm. And their hearts are so there. And the more people that we can get to to get in touch with that, because in my experience, it's almost like a slight shifting of the ego. Mm. It's like seeing above instead of straight Mm. a little bit. Um, And so everyone can use that. Everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and the ironic thing in California for uh, Native American tribes to participate in the regulated cannabis industry, they have to forfeit their sovereignty. What? Yeah. And that's just, it's an irrational Who expectation. Would write that? It's, it's an irrational expectation. That's part of the legislation? <laughs> I'm horrified. Ain't that America? Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us and for educating us and for your service. Thank you for inviting me to elevate veteran voices. I have the privilege of speaking on behalf of so many troops across this state and across this country that are desperately seeking safe, natural modalities for healing in community. And this opportunity really means so much to us. Because if you can't give me free cannabis, if you can't give me money, then you can help me with awareness. Yeah. The more awareness that we create, the more troops want to get involved, the more dispensaries want to host our service, the more farmers want to donate. So I just want to invite you to own the understanding that you are directly contributing to saving lives. Thank you. No, thank you.
Thanks again to Ryan for joining us in the studio. To donate or get involved with Operation Evac, go to operationevac.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay curious.